It's an honor to be able to talk to you guys again. I did it in uh, June and just had a great privilege of doing that. And it's just a wonderful opportunity to speak to you folks this morning. We're going to jump right into it. If you remember, if you hadn't been here with us for a while, we're in the book of Philippians, which is a wonderful letter that Paul wrote to a church that he loved very much. And uh, we've been spending time this summer kind of working through that book. And we're in chapter 4 of Philippians. So if you've got a device or a Bible, uh, turn to there and we'll just jump into Philippians 4. We're going to look at 1 through 9 this morning and we'll jump into it so once you're there. Um, so as we jump into this, I'm going to be throwing some slides up there and different things. If you want a copy of that, just pull out your camera take a picture. That's how we take notes in the 20th century. So feel free to do that. It won't uh, startle me or freak me out or anything like that. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 1 through 9. Here we go, all right? 4-1, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, i got to stop you right there. For you Bible scholars out there that know their scriptures back and forth and know how to do Bible study methods, anytime you see a therefore, you say, what's the therefore? Very golly, that's amazing. What's the therefore? Therefore, right? And so Paul is making a statement here. And so in order to know what he's talking about, we need to kind of regress a little bit and look back a little bit. So turn back just to chapter 3, verse 15 through 19, and let's see what he's talking about here, okay? Let us therefore, verse 15, as many as are per perfect, have this attitude. And what attitude is he talking about? Saul spent a good time talking about this. A yearning for Jesus, a passion to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, to know who he was. This is passion Paul had for his church to know Jesus, right? Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, yearning for Jesus. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal it, that also to you. However, let us keep living in the, by the same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now here we go, verse 18. For many walk, of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is their destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So looking back just a little bit, Paul is saying something here. He's saying, I want you to be aware. Most theologians would say there's two antagonists in this picture that Paul is referring to. The one Paul, uh, Saul referred to was the uh, Judaizers, and they were ones who, on one hand, were teaching uh, from the Judaizers, that some of, some of these guys might have been Christians. We don't know that for sure. But uh, they were teaching, and probably, um, they probably weren't, but we just don't know. These were teachers who wanted to limit the Philippians' legitimate liberty and joy in life by persuading them to submit to the laws of God that did not govern them. A definition would be something like this. In the early church, the Judaizers taught a combination of God's grace and human effort. A Judaizer taught that in order for a Christian to be truly right with God, he must confirm, conform to the Mosaic law. Circumcision especially was promoted as a necessary for salvation. So they were saying basically that you had to be circumcised. Grace was okay, but you had to be circumcised and go along with that in order to be a believer. Paul dealt with this really, really heavily in Acts chapter 15 and strongly condemned it in the book of Galatians. He spent a lot of time really debating that issue with those folks. In summer, he basically says, the Judaizers are saying, it's okay to be saved with God's grace. It's okay that God saved you and you can believe in the grace of God, but, but you have to be saved also by the law, by keeping the law and the commandments. And 
you know, today in, in our terms, we see this as a very legalistic type church or folks that are very legalistic in nature. And so it really applies to today also, not just back then, that we, a lot of people will, will hold to a very legalistic system of rules and regulations and they negate the grace of Christ and the love of Christ that he has for us in his grace and mercy. So that was one group of people on, the, on, the, on one side that were very legalistic, very, uh, said, got a hold of the law, circumcision was very much important to that. The other group was a group called the anti, uh, well, let me go back here. We, we have a lot of folks, even today, you might have grown up in churches that are um, very legalistic or ones that are very staunch, hard on just the rules and regulations. And sometimes it gets very difficult to really work through that because they're, they're always beating on you about what the right thing to do is. And they kind of negate the grace of God to some aspect. Mildred was a church gossip. Um, she was the self-appointed monitor of the church's morals. She kept sticking her nose in other people's business. Several members did not approve her, of her extracurricular activities, but they feared her enough to maintain their silence. Mildred made the mistake, however, when she accused George, a new member, of being an alcoholic after she saw his old pickup truck parked in front of the town's one and only bar that afternoon. She sighed in disgust, and she emphatically told George and several others that everyone who had seen it would know what he was doing. Well, George was a man of a few words, and he stared at her for a moment and just turned away and didn't say anything. He walked away, didn't explain, didn't defend, didn't deny. He said nothing. However, later that evening, George quietly parked his pickup in front of Mildred's house, walked home, and left it there all night. So, I mean, um, you know, sometimes the law side of things really gets us, and sometimes people really hold to that. We even know that today, people in the Christian faith who really hold to a very legalistic type faith. And Paul was addressing that very much in the book of uh, Philippians where he said, you guys, it's about God's grace. You don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. The other group that, well, let me say this too. In, um, the other group of people that were kind of the antagonists back then was a group called the Antimonians, or Antinomians is how you pronounce it, right? And many of these folks were probably believers, but some who may not have been, and they were urging the abandonment of legitimate law or truth in life, and they were advocating self-indulgence because of grace. Does that make sense? So you have the law side and you have the grace side over here. And these guys said it didn't matter, right? It's all about the grace of God. The Apostle Paul dealt with this heavily in Romans 6, 1 and 2 when he says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? The most frequent attack on the doctrine of salvation by grace alone is that it encourages sin. Now let me talk a little bit about grace and truth here for a second, um, because it's a, it's a contrast that sometimes I'll put up for people and I'll say, uh, in your family, when you grew up, were you more raised to the law side or were you raised more to the grace side? And I set it up as a polar extremes when actually it's not a polar extreme. It's really put together in one. I'm going to show you a chart here that really shows it. It's really unified together. They're both important, but they come together in a perfect unison in the person of Jesus Christ. 100% grace and 100% truth. Both are critically important. It's not one or the other. It's not live on the law side or live on the grace side. It's 100% of both. And Jesus was a beautiful illustration of this in his life. You remember the story about uh, the woman caught in adultery? Set up probably. The Pharisees pulled her out. 
I think partially clothed, threw her on the floor and says, Jesus, what do you say we do? The law says we are to stone this woman to death, which they were correct. What do we do with her? Jesus knelt down and wrote in the dirt. Then he gets up and he says, those of you without sin, throw the first stone. And they started to walk off. John 8 says this, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. What's that? Grace. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Truth. 100% truth and 100% grace he gave to her in one statement. He didn't lean to one side or the other. He said both. And I think that's the, kind of what we need to do in our lives, kind of pull that together and try to have a grace-based life and a, law, and a law-based life. One that's based on the truth of God, not a bunch of existential things that we have to do to be right with God in his eyes. A small view of sin always leads to a small view of grace. A small view of sin always leads to a small view of grace. But on the other hand, bad religion has hurt a lot of people. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Bad religion has hurt a lot of people. On the other side, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. We don't earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do in our lives to earn the salvation of God. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how many uh, confessions you have. I don't care how faithful you are to go to church, how much you read the Bible. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. It's given to us by God's grace and grace alone. On the other hand, grace is not opposed to effort. Once we are saved, we put effort in. We walk our faith. We do things. We try to change our lives to be more Christ-like in nature. I follow a, a pastor who is a part of a large church, and um, he tells a story about when anybody comes on staff or when anybody comes into the church as a staff member or a pastor, there was another elder in the church who was also a pastor at that time, but he was just an elder, and he gives every one of them this statement, and it says this. Changing one's life was never a precondition for coming into the presence of Christ. His straining at gnat enemies thought they could discredit him with the accusation that he ate and drank with sinners. In reality, all they did was reveal his strategy. What, Pharisee, what the Pharisees missed, but Jesus understood, was that the more gracious you are, the more truthful you can be. Grace creates an audience for truth. Truth cannot change a person who is not present to hear it. That's really good. You can spout off all the truth you want, all the laws and regulations and rules, but if there's no grace in there, people won't hear it. People won't even come to hear it. Paul says to stand firm. Don't give up. When, when the pressures of the world come in, when our, our postmodern system beats on us, when our post-Christian world kind of just jams in on us, when they say your values, the values of Jesus Christ are not prevalent anymore, they're not worth anything anymore, when they start beating on us and we say, I just want to give up, Paul says to stand firm, therefore. I uh, have always, even before they're popular, had a uh, liking and an interest in the Navy SEALs. I just think their ethos is just phenomenal. And what they stand for is just amazing. And um, 20 to 30% of the 1,000 recruits a year make it through training and become SEALs. There's a bell that's outside of their training, and it's always available for people who want to quit. All they got to do is go ring the bell. That's it. And they encourage them to go ring the bell. 
because they don't want the ones that will stand firm and stand with them at the end. Commander Wark Denver was a U.S. Navy SEAL who had run all phases of BUDS training, including advanced sniper, hand-to-hand fighting, communications, diving, and language. He led special forces missions in the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, and other international hotspots. He starred in the, act, uh, the hit film Act of Valor, which is based on the true SEAL adventures. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree from Syracuse University, where he was an All-American lacrosse player and the captain of the varsity lacrosse team. He earned a Master's degree in the Global Business Leadership from the University of San Diego, and he now speaks for conferences and conventions nationwide. He is a part of a large church, and uh, the staff asked him to come in and speak. They asked him to come and speak to the staff who were who are struggling with ministry, or fighting the battle each day about ministry and what they're going through. And he, uh, in, that, in that meeting where 100-plus staff folks, a staff member stood up and he said, uh, I would love to believe that I'm the kind of person who would not ring the bell, that I have the amount of willpower to, to not do it, but I'm not sure if I do. What, what kind of things can I implement in my life, or what kind of things can I do to make sure that I'm not the kind of person who would ring the bell when the going gets tough? Rourke looked at him, and you could see the confusion on his eyes as the question did not compute with him. He casually looked at him and said, just don't ring the bell, bro. You know? He explained later that when he went into hell week, it was going to be death or success. Quitting was not an option that he even considered. And I think that's what Paul's saying in his book to his friends in the Philippian church. Don't quit. I know it's tough. I know all the pressures that are coming on you from the world, all the people that are saying this, all the people that are saying this, and all the, the mess that's going on. It's just like us now. It hadn't changed, right? It's, it's not easy to walk the Christian faith. It really isn't, especially in this world that takes the values of Jesus and basically discredit them. They're not of any value anymore in our country, and we have to fight that every day. Or you might have friends in your family that are beating on you about you have to live this way, you have to live this way. And Paul says, stand firm. you got to live in the joy of Jesus and the encouragement of who he is. I think Paul wept when he says in this passage because he just wanted people to re- meet the real Jesus. 100% grace and 100% truth. That was his passion. I just want you to know Jesus and the fellowship of his suffering and, and passionately know him as your Lord for who he really is, not who all the culture says he is. As we move on in verse 2 and 3, it says this in verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. A very interesting passage. Um, we got two extremely faithful women, right? I mean, they have been written down in Scripture for us forever, and Paul says these women were just faithful women who who partnered with me, who battled with me, who fought with me. But something was going on within the church. We don't know what it is, have no clue what the argument was, and he's trying to get peace between these two women who are in the church. It always seems that the church many times is majoring on the minors, doesn't it? We get in arguments, we get in fights, we get in discussions about things. They're usually very minor issues, but we make them major issues. Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker were preachers in the late 1800s. They um, shared the pulpit together. They were good friends. 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon smoked cigars. Joseph Parker, on the other hand, loved the theater. And both of them looked at each other and said, that's wrong. You can't smoke cigars and you can't go to the theater. Someone asked Spurgeon about cigar smoking. He said he did not smoke to excess. When, he, when asked what that meant, he said with a wink in his eye, no more than two at a time. <laughs> Unfortunately, Spurgeon and Parker broke fellowship because of that issue. You see what I mean? It, it, majoring on the minors, we get in each other's mess and we start fighting with each other. And I'm not sure what was going on with these two women, but Paul says, women, you guys need to live in, har live in harmony. And help me, church, to help these women live in harmony with each other. Uh, when I spoke last August, we talked, or last June, we talked about what are the essentials of salvation? What are the essentials for orthodoxy? And I put up a quote attributed to Augustine. It says this, the essentials unity and the non-essentials liberty and in all things charity. You know, I think Paul's just saying, hey, church, we could disagree on things. We could have issues that go on, but don't make them major issues. You know, on the essential things, yeah, we're going to fight for them. On the non-essential things, just have some charity with each other. But we seem to, in the churches today in America, we fight about little things, and Paul is just saying, ladies, church, we need to live in harmony with each other. What's harmony? You know, we just sang up here a couple songs. So when I sing a part and Faith was singing another part, she's singing completely different notes than I'm singing. But when they're blended together, you hear how beautiful they sound. That's harmony. A different part, right? A different purpose than my part that I'm singing. But when she sings it, it, it blends in together. And it becomes this beautiful harmony that's beautiful to our ears. And I think Paul is saying that. Live in harmony with each other. You could have different parts. You could have different opinions. But when it comes to in the church together, live in harmony with each other. MacArthur says this. Uh, when the Lord laments, what the Lord laments and opposes, Satan applauds and fosters. Few things demoralize, discourage, and weaken the church as much as bickering, backbiting, and fighting among its, among its members. Because of the quarreling, the father is dishonored, the son is disgraced, his people are demoralized and discredited, and the world is turned off and condemned in unbelief. Fractured fellowship robs Christians of joy and effectiveness, robs God of glory, and robs the world of a true testimony of the gospel. High price for an ego trip, right? So church, live in harmony. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men, for the Lord is near. When I read this and started thinking about it, the first thing that came to my mind was the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in verse 5 of chapter 5? Jesus says, blessed are the gentle or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, or literally the land. They will inherit. Blessed are the meek. And we kind of look at that and go, does that mean I'm supposed to retract and be this weak, wimpy kind of person who doesn't stand for my faith, who let people walk all over me. And it doesn't mean that at all. Matter of fact, you look at the word in the Greek, it really meant bridled strength under control. Bridled strength. And that word was used so often for a horse charging into battle. There's a horse called a Percheron horse. It was bred for this purpose. The purpose of this horse was to train it to go into battle. And it would charge into battle head first. It wouldn't hesitate. And that's what it was trained to do. And this horse would just ride into spears, ride into everything else. It would just kind of run straight into it. But it was bridled strength under control. The ability to have strength and yet have it bridled back a little bit. 
When Jesus defines his character, the only time in Scripture where he really, really defines himself, he says this, Matthew chapter 11, take my yoke upon you. In other words, listen to me. Take my yoke upon you. Listen to me and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we're to be people who are not walked over by the world, right? We stand up for what we believe in, but it's bridled control. It's self-control. He moves on in verse uh, 6, and this is a, we can spend a lot of time here because it's such a powerful issue and one that's going on today. He says this, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds. In Christ Jesus. I have memorized that one for years and years and years. What a great passage to memorize. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting 40 million adults in the United States, 18 and older. 18.1% of the population every year is affected by this. One in five deal with anxiety and depression. The phrase, just give me a Xanax, is kind of colloquial phrasing nowadays because the drugs are so popular amongst our culture, because anxiety has ridden to such a high level. Now let me say this and and kind of get the elephant out of the room here. I do not believe that what Paul was talking about was clinical anxiety and depression. I don't believe he knew it existed. That being said, I think clinical anxiety and depression needs professional help. I do. I do. Not that the spiritual life can't play a part in that. The spiritual life can have a huge part in helping a person through anxiety and depression. But I don't believe he was talking about a person that, had, that has a serious disorders that um, really needs professional help. I think he's more talking about the anxieties and the pressures that are on us every single day. The stuff that comes on us that you and I are dealing with, some people deal with it real well, some people don't. The problem is the church doesn't handle this real well. And over the decades, the church has not handled anxiety and depression very well at all. Matter of fact, back in the 80s, if you remember, there was a phrase that said, the church is good at shooting their wounded. It's true, right? Here's some phrases that the church throws out to people with anxiety and depression. There must be some hidden, unconfessed sin in your life that's causing this. So you just need to confess. What's that hidden sin in your life that you're not confessing and God's putting this on you, right? Uh, you have to have more faith. That's the problem. You don't have enough faith. If you had enough faith, you wouldn't be going through anxiety and depression. You just need to trust Jesus more. That's the problem. You're not trusting Jesus. If you, believer, would trust Jesus, you wouldn't have anxiety and depression. Another one, hey, just let go and let God. Right? Damaging. The church has the ability to kill people. And even in a congregation of our size, we have folks in here that are dealing with anxiety and depression. Some on a severe level, some not. But it's, 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 it's stifling. And it kills us. We live in a COVID world, right? And I truly believe it's caused serious emotional damage amongst people. The aggression I see now in people's lives versus pre-COVID has just been ratcheted up. You can see it in drivers. You can see it in people's lives. It's just... It's just been elevated. 
Tremendous anxiety from that. We have instantaneous knowledge, right? We, we used to, back when I was growing up, you knew what was going on on three channels, basically in your subdivision, in your world. Today, we can look out and see what's going on everywhere, right? We know what's going on in every country. We know what's going on in every major disaster. We know every crime that's going on, any, any murders that are going on. We know everything, and it presses in on us, and the anxieties get higher and higher and higher and it, and the, because we don't know how to deal with that much information. It's just stifling, right? Jesus says, in the last times you will hear of wars and rumors and wars, don't be alarmed. Those things got to happen. But we hear so much of it because of this, these screens that we're looking at. And by the way, these screens um, are, are, I mean, they're great tools, right? But they're dangerous. The, the amount of screen time we spend on these things, looking at, at news and different things, and it's just it's stifling. You know, and I'm not against social media. It's a good tool. But you know what? Um, Facebook and Instagram and those other things say, this is how your life needs to be. Is your life matching up to what everybody else's Facebook or Instagram feed says? Extremely immobilizing. The U.S. National Library of Medicine, the National Institute of Health, about six, seven years ago, before Instagram was even out, I think, said increased adolescent generalized anxiety symptoms were associated with increased Facebook behavior and repetitive Facebook behavior, Instagram also, and other forms now. As adolescent Facebook use is quite prevalent, mental health and primary care health professionals should inquire about adolescent Facebook use and behaviors, particularly when treating those with generalized anxiety symptoms. So a question I have for you is this. I'm not slamming Facebook and Instagram. It's good if it's used properly. But is your life um, really as neat and tidy and adventurous as your Facebook feed says it is? Is it really that spectacular? Because behind many glamorous vacations are, are mountains of debt. Behind many adventurous pictures, there are marriage difficulties and wayward kids, relational struggles and addictions. And I believe behind every person is this question. Think about it. Am I enough? You don't wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, am I enough? But really, honestly, you do. As you look in the mirror and you get ready for work or for school, students, you say, am I enough to be liked? Right? Will somebody like me in my high school or junior high? Uh, will I make it in sports? To get into college, am I enough? Will I ever have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? And if I do have a boyfriend or girlfriend, what do I have to do to be enough for him or for her? Tremendous pressure. Am I enough? For wives, am I enough as a mother, as a wife, as a working mother? Am I attractive enough to my husband? Tremendous anxiety. Husbands, am I enough at my work to succeed as a financial provider for my household and my family? Am I enough as a spiritual leader? Am I enough as a protector of my wife and my children? And seniors, you know, am I washed up? Do I have any value anymore? That question just keeps jumping into our brains. You know, am I enough? And, and we, we hide behind that. We don't really say that that's what we're thinking about. But honestly, it really is. We give credence to the voices we hear in our head every day that say we are not enough. 
You know, we, we hear all these voices that say, you're just not there. You don't match up to Jim and to Susan and to your neighbors. Because if you did match up, you would look like they would look. And it, it brings all kinds of tremendous anxiety upon us. When God looks at us and he says, you are my child. I have chosen you. You have value and I have a plan for your life. Don't believe what the world says. Don't listen to the voices in your head that say you're not enough. You are enough and I will make you enough. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember the statement Jesus says, and why, what, are, what are you worried about? Why are you worried about the clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, do they not spin? Yes, I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like the one of these. Didn't clothe himself like one of these. But if God so clothes, clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow and is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You little faith, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus was fully aware of anxiety pressure. He said, don't worry. I got you. It's okay. Paul says the answer to anxiety is the peace that prayer provides. That prayer provides. I told you uh, back in June the definition of joy, and that is a feeling of deep, a feeling deep within that the soul that comes from knowing that Jesus is still at work in our lives and in our world in spite of our circumstances. I think that same definition kind of rolls over to the peace of God. The peace of God is a feeling deep within our soul that comes from knowing that Jesus is still at work in our lives and in our world in spite of our circumstances. That's the peace that prayer provides. There's a guy named Fenlon. He was a uh, priest back in the Middle Ages and a mystic, and he said this, Tell God all that is in your heart as one unloads one's heart. It's a pleasure and it pay, its pleasures and its pains to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys that he may, be, he may sober them. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes and he may help you conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved taste for evil, your instability. Tell him Self, how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, how pride disguises you to yourself and to others. Howard Hendricks said, prayer realigns us with God and restores peace in our lives. So I want to do something with you. About a year and a half ago, um, I was doing a lesson or a message up here about the Sermon on the Mount, and we talked about the Lord's Prayer a little bit. I don't know about you, but the Lord's Prayer, when I grew up saying it every single week in church, I mean, we said it religiously every single week. And then on the football team, right, right before the game, you all get down and you say the Lord's Prayer together. You just kind of recite it off. That's what we, I don't know if they still do that nowadays, but uh, we did it every football game, for every football game. Lord, please help us win this game. And the other team's going, Lord, please help us win this game. I think God's sitting up there and going, hey, may the best team win. You know, I'm just watching. But... Uh, um, we would say that prayer all the time, you know. I don't even know, honestly, if my kids could recite the Lord's Prayer today. But the interesting thing is, is the disciples come to Jesus and they said, teach us how to pray. 
Scholars debate whether Jesus actually prayed this prayer or he just taught it to them. So I was taught this, and I want to teach it to you, um, the Lord's Prayer. And what I mean is I don't pray this every day, but if I have a little bit of time, just a little bit of time, I work through the Lord's Prayer because Jesus himself gave it to us as a way to pray. But I heard it in a different format that I want to give to you, and I want to talk about this as, as prayer because he set it up as a pattern, I think, of how to pray to God. The first thing that we need to talk about is the fact that in prayer, most of the times we go, hey, God, here's my list of things. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, right? As fast as we can, we rattle them off our needs. That's okay. But if you have a little time, I encourage you to sit down. And before you pray, say this, God, I got a lot of things on my mind that I want to say to you. But I want you to stop me if need be. I just want you to stop me. If there's something I need to listen to, if there's something I need to uh, think about, then just stop me as I'm rattling off my prayers and let me listen for just a minute. And then start with this. Our Father. And just stop. What does God want to say to you about our Father? Thank you, Lord, for the privilege we have to come to you that we can call you Father. A Father who loves his children. I can't imagine or comprehend someone that could love me more than my Father. And you are my Father. Thank you, Father. And just stop and rest and relax. Who is in heaven? Well, we know that God is omnipresent. He's all places at all times. He's just not stuck in heaven. So what I do is I say, our, God, our Father who, who is in heaven, but you're thankful, I'm so thankful that you're in heaven, but I'm thankful that you surround me. Right now, God is in this place. His Holy Spirit is in this place. Right now, in my closet or in my prayer or sitting on my patio, God, you are with me. And you promise to never, ever leave me. And just say that. Thank you that you're surrounding me. And stop. Just, just be quiet for a second. If nothing comes to mind, if nothing hits you, then, then move on. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, that's not something we use the word hallowed. I don't think y'all used it this week at all, probably. Right? Here's what I do. Hallowed be thy name. God, how great is your name. And just stop. And, and just rest and listen to him. How, how great is your name, God. Then I say this, God, thank you that you are wise enough to know what is best for me. You are loving enough to want what is best for me, and you are strong enough to do what is best for me. And just stop, right? And rest in that and listen to God. Nothing happens, nothing comes to mind. Move on, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, I want what you want in your kingdom of heaven, what you have up there in the kingdom of heaven, your perfect will, I want that will for my life here on earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? So God, I want what you want in heaven here in my life, in this world. I want from my marriage, I want from my finances, I want from my relationships around me, I want for those who, that I disagree with, I want all that stuff, what you desire here on earth for me. And just stop in that one for a while. Right? 
Lord, my marriage is just not doing well. What do you want for my marriage? How can I change who I am to be more like you? I want what your will is, not my will. Change my finances. Here's my addictions. I want what you want in my life, not what I want. And just be open to him and let him talk to you and let him speak to you. And let the anxiety of those situations roll off. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, do you know what I, I need, not what I want? I don't think it's a prayer about, you know, I need all this, I want all this stuff. What I need in my life, Lord, to represent your character. That's what I want you to provide for me, right? I want, Lord, you to give me the things that I need in my life to serve you well, to, pro to provide for my family, and to take care of your kingdom here on earth. And just rest in that. What are your needs? Not your wants. What are your needs? Share them with them. Your daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lord, help me to respond to the people the way you respond to me with grace and forgiveness. Thank you um, for, for your desire to want me to forgive people. Help me remove, remove me from the anger prison that I can be in because of others who have hurt me. Because what anger does for us, guys, is it keeps us in a, a locked in a prison. And God is calling us to forgive people like he forgave us. I'm not saying that person's going to forgive you ever or, or, or come to a right understanding, but it releases you from that prison of anger where you can go, I forgive so-and-so the way they forgive me, the way you've forgiven me, God. I forgive them. Rest in that. Because how many times does anger dig in our lives and drive our anxieties? It's very, very painful. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here's one. Uh, Lord, lead me out of the destruction that my sin brings in my life and back into your kingdom presence. Lead me out of the destruction that this sin in my life is bringing. You know what it is, right? What's the sin in your life? It brings destruction. The thief comes to kill and destroy, and he will do that. That's his promise. Lord, lead me out of the destruction that my sin brings and back into your kingdom presence. And rest in that. List them out for them. Share them in your heart, what's on your heart. You saved me from hell, now save me from the hellish life that sin will bring. It will. Paul says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Remember what Paul said? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Do you think he was in a little anxiety? He was. Don't kid yourself. He's a human being. He's in prison. His head's going to get cut off. Do you think that's a relaxing place to be? No. Paul had anxiety too, but he rested in God's presence. And he said to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul understood what it meant. And he prayed before his father. So I, I encourage you that Paul says that prayer is an antidote for, for anxiety. Right? The daily pressures and anxieties that come in, stop and pray about it a little bit. Maybe throw the Lord's Prayer out there and just do what I did with you guys and just rest in that and relax and see how God speaks to you and removes some of that anxiety in your life. Let's move on. Um, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. I don't know who said this. I think it's Ray Steadman. He said, on the authority of the Word of God, I submit to you that the greatest conflict 
being waged is not international, not political, not economic, and not social. The greatest conflict taking place in the world today is the battle for the control of our minds, right? You're wondering, Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to the world, right? Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't wrap your mind around the world, right? Wrap it around what God says is true. So the question I would ask you is, where does your mind spend time? One of the spiritual disciplines uh, is, is fasting. You don't do that much today in the church, right? But it doesn't mean just fasting from food. Have you tried fasting from this for a while? I know people that have. They've cut off their Facebook feed because of the anxiety that's put in their brains because of all that's going along. They said, I can't take it anymore. I'm, I'm getting out of that, right? That's a good fast, right? Turn off the news. The last thing I want to be is a person that's elderly in age that has Fox News on 24-7. Golly, it just beats you up, you know? It's, and I do that. I, I fast from the news, and I'll turn the TV off, and I say, I'll, I'll turn it on for weather, and then sports is even getting political. You know, I kind of go, golly. I mean, I just want to watch something simple and mindless, and I get politics, right? So you just got to fast from things and turn things off in the world. Where's your mind spending time on what is good, on what is pure? Exchange tragedy for beauty, church, and calamity for the glorious, you know, and, and dwell on what is right and lovely and good and pure and excellent and try to keep your mind focused on those things to remove that anxiety that we feel daily. Verse 9, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So let me ask you this, who are you following? Paul says, follow me. Or who are you mentoring? Or are you a mentor? Or who are your mentors? Do you have any? They don't have to be physical people. They could be, and they should be probably, but uh, a lot of my mentors are people I listen to that I respect online, that I, I love, and they, ch they challenge my life. Other people are, are people that I know that physically speak truth into my life, mentors in my life. So the question I ask you is this. If you could get a do-over, how great would it have been if you had a trusted mentor or a leader in your life coaching you around the avoidable landmines that you stepped on in your past years? Someone reminding you as a young man or a young woman or a young mom or a questioning husband that there is a better way. A person that comes to you when you're hurting because you feel things are falling apart and would speak into your life godly truth where Jesus says, this is how life works better. Do you have any mentors? People speaking truth into your life? Moms, I know you're mentoring, right? Every day. Dads, we're mentoring our kids. We're teaching them. That's great. We ought to all be mentoring somebody or being mentored. Look around. Find somebody. You could talk to the elders here at the church. There's lots of mature men here who would love to meet with you. for. And I don't mean sit down with you and say, let's read the Bible and talk about the exegesis of all this. No, I just want to talk into your life. They want to hear you explain what's going on in your life. And you kind of go, yeah, I, I've been there. I get it. I know what you're going through. Let me tell you how I kind of got through that. They just want to listen to you. If you need someone like that, talk to the staff here, talk to the elders, talk to me. We'll find people that, that would love to sit down with you over lunch. I'm not talking for years and years. Maybe just for a, a period of time, two, three months. 
Have lunch once every, every month and get together and just talk about your life. We need that. And Paul says that's a way to relieve anxiety and to get peace when people are speaking into your lives. Where do you find truth in your life? Where do you find answers for all this stuff? You know, because is it your emotions and feelings? Because that's subjective. And they're going to fall apart. In Matthew, Jesus says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed, or God spoke down out of this shadow, and he said, with a voice of God, said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then he said this, listen to him. Isn't that great? Jesus, listen to him. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it did not fall for it had been founded upon the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell. It was a very great fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching and he was, what he was teaching them, for he had authority that they had not heard before. Jesus, man, you know, just listen to him. And find godly men or godly women who can mentor you and take care of you and come beside you and speak truth into your life. So I'm going to do something kind of different as we close here, right? Um, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. Not like you've heard it before, not reciting it out loud. We're just going to pray it together. It's going to take about three minutes or so, and we're going to finish up with this. If you are riddled with anxiety, if stuff is going on in your life, or you just need to pray, I want you to stop for a second and just pray with me through the Lord's Prayer. Can we do that together? Okay. Let's pray. God, we want to say some things to, to you, and we have a lot that's on our mind, but uh, if there's something you want to say to us, then help us to stop and to listen to you. Our Father, thank you for the privilege of coming to you as our Father, not a condemning God, not the cop in the sky, our Father who loves us. Who is in heaven? Thank you that you're surrounding us, that you promise you will never leave us and never forsake us. Even when I feel alone and desperate, and living in a desert and it's dry, you are there with us. Thank you. Hallowed be there your name, Bible. Hallowed be thy name. God, you're so great, so powerful. You're in control. We don't have to worry. You're wise enough to know what is best for us. You're loving enough to want what is best for us. And you're strong enough to do what is best for us. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we want what you want in our lives, what you want in heaven, in your perfect presence, in your will. We want for our marriages, for our finances, for our relationships, for those we love and those that we don't. We want that in our lives. Give us today our daily bread. 
Lord, you know what we need to represent you. You know that we need clothes and food and to feed our families. You know we need other things to represent your character here on earth, and you promise to provide those things and not for us to worry. So we give to you our needs, for you know what they are. Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our our debtors. Help us to respond to people the way you would respond to us in grace and forgiveness. Take us out of that anger prison and help us to love people and those who have hurt us the way you would love them and the way you have loved us. So lift those people you're thinking of in your life that have hurt you, that are just burning your heart Help me to forgive them. Lord, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Please leave us out of the destruction that our sin brings, the hell that it brings in our lives, and take us from that. Remove that sin from our lives. Father, help us to stand firm against bad religion, against persecutions from the outside world, against the things that make us want to tap out and ring the bell. Give us your strength, Lord. Help us to live in harmony with each other. May our church be a representation of you in your bridled strength and kindness. Hear our prayers and remove the anxiety in our lives as we rest in your joy and in your peace. Help us to focus on those things that are pure and beautiful and worthy of praise. And finally, help us to lean into your words and your truth and not ours and to find those who can care for us and to mentor us as we struggle through the landmines of our lives. Father, thank you for this time together for your word in Philippians. We love you. Thanks for listening to us. It's in your name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks. Listen, um, one more thing before we dismiss you guys. If you need help with the Lord's Prayer, I put a bunch of copies out there on the middle table. If you want to grab one, it's just what we talked about here today, and you need to go home and kind of go, I'm going to try that. You know what? I'm going to sit out on my patio. I'm going to sit where there's quiet. I'm just kind of work through the Lord's Prayer. You want to do that and need some help, I've put this out there for you. Just grab a sheet, take it home, give it a try, see what you think. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Good to see you. See you next week. Have a great one. You are dismissed.